Rich Roll has a pretty amazing story. He was addicted to alcohol. Then he decided he wanted to become an ultra endurance athlete and became one of the best. And then he just decided that he wanted to create one of the biggest and best podcasts in the world. And he succeeded at that. He's an incredibly interesting guy and we have an amazing conversation. This week's episode is brought to you by Onnit. Onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything. By 8sleep, 8sleep.com slash amp for $150 off the pod pro and by native deodorant nativedeo.com slash Marcus or promo code Marcus for 20% off your first order. I remember when I was 28 years old and I was looking out at a lot of successful people in the world who are my age or younger than me. And I thought, you know what? I screwed it up. I should have gone left when I went right. And here I am and it's too late and it's all done for me. And I really literally thought that I would get tortured by that very same thought. And then, of course, two years later, I started on it. I started my podcast. I ended up writing the books. Everything fell into place. It just took me a little bit longer than the expectations that I had in my mind. Well, that's the reality for so many of us. And Rich Roll has another one of these stories, a story that he didn't get started with his journey until he was 39. But there's stories from Stephen Pressfield and all kinds of other stories that inspire us to say no matter what our life path is and where we want to take it, there's always time and there's always a way. So in this podcast, we cover addiction, we cover inspiration, we cover all of the things that help you get from point A, wherever that point A is, to point B, where you're heading and where you want to go. I can't wait to share this conversation with Rich Roll. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. So this week for Onnit, we have another Onnit 6 Transformation Challenge. And these Onnit 6 Transformation Challenges are amazing because not only do they pertain to your physical body, but they're also your mental body, your emotional body. This is full, total human optimization. And these stories then support and reward those people that have gone through the journey. Now, of course, the base of this is the Onnit 6 Transformational Program. There's body weight, there's kettlebells, there's steel clubs, there's steel mace, and Master Coach John Wolf delivers all of these programs incredibly well. This is the way to set the foundation for a new physical expression, whether you're a veteran lifter or athlete, or whether you just want to get started and lay the foundation, there's ways to escalate each of these programs to meet your needs. And they're awesome. So definitely check that out. To be eligible for the contest, you have to have at least one on it six program or the on it in 30 workouts, which is the faster version of that. And the grand prize winners are going to get 6,000 in cash, a thousand in store credit and access to all of the on it six programs. So it's a rad opportunity and i've gotten to meet some of the on it six transformation winners and it's been a real catalyst for them to be able to reinvest even more into their own life and into their own journey so check it out go to onnit.com slash aubrey or onnit.com slash challenge and check out the onnit six transformation challenge next up we have eight sleep So you've heard me talk about mattresses and there's a lot of good ones, but do not go to the mattress store. Like this is not the way to go. And when you're talking about mattress tech, all right, first of all, you want none of the toxic chemicals and all the bullshit that's in all the other mattresses. That's something that Eight Sleep has covered. But then you really want to level up. You like really want to push the game to that baller status where you're going to sleep like a wee babe out in the grassy fields in the arms of mother nature well in mother nature's arms it gets cold at night and we're used to that you know we think we want all the warm blankets and a hot thing but then we get hot and we throw off our covers that's not the way 
The way is the loving but slightly chilly embrace of those grassy fields at the arms of Mother Nature. Well, Eight Sleeps got you covered. They got water cooling system and a water heating system in case those chilly arms of Mother Nature turn like Montana or like Edmonton or some shit and get real cold. And then you're going to want to warm up. And then, oh, wow, this is amazing. And you're going to be like at a hot spring right in your mattress. And that's awesome. Check it out. The temperatures go down to 55 degrees or up to 110 degrees. It's a great experience and you're in full control. The results are that eight sleep users have fallen asleep up to 30% faster. They've reduced sleep interruptions by up to 40% and they just get a more restful sleep. So this is the way to go if you want to bring your mattress game to the pinnacle. Go to 8sleep.com amp. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com amp. And check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkout using promo code AMP. Again, the mattress is named the Pod Pro. You save $150 at checkout using the promo code AMP at 8sleep.com. And finally, we have native deodorant. Now, if you've been paying attention, there's a lot of discussions going on about vaccines right now, and that makes sense. And one of the discussion threads is around aluminum. Now, aluminum is used as an adjuvant in a lot of vaccines because it's very toxic to the immune system it creates a strong immune response and that's one of the things that many vaccines use now it's not in the vaccine that everybody's talking about right now but it is in many of the vaccines so when you start to pay attention to the toxicity of things like aluminum you realize that you want to get this shit out of your body great to put in a can and any piece that breaks off your can is going to be big enough that it's not micronized so it's not going to absorb into your bloodstream the same way and cross the blood-brain barrier But when you have tiny, tiny micronized pieces of aluminum like are found in deodorants, that's going to go right through your skin and into your bloodstream, which is absolutely why you got to pay attention to the products you put on your body as well as in your body. And Native Deodorant, they got that covered. The products are made with impeccable ingredients. They smell awesome. And I really just encourage you guys to check it out. This is the solution for natural deodorant. So... Go to nativedeo.com slash Marcus or use the promo code Marcus at checkout and get 20% off your first order. So nativedeo.com slash Marcus and enjoy the most badass deodorant I have ever found. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Rich Roll. Your story, if we were going to use a metaphor, a floral metaphor, I mean, we're talking lotus flower here. It was some heaviness or some muck or some some depth some mud that you had to go through and then the flowering of your life has really been incredibly profound to see where you went as an athlete and now where you are as a podcaster and just a an inspirational figure out in the world Mm. but to tell the story let's go back into the into the darker times into the heavier times the denser times the mud the muck the genesis of you know some some challenge that led you into addiction and and a lot of challenges in your early life yeah sure i mean i would i would couch it initially by saying that you know all my needs were met as a child like i didn't have a hard childhood you know Mm -hmm. i didn't have a david goggins type of experience growing up i have two loving parents who met my needs um and i was taken care of and they're still married so i didn't experience a traditional um type of childhood trauma uh that's not really part of my narrative but i think we all have dark moments of the soul and we all have no one gets out of life alive you know we all we all have our our issues and 
you know, mine, mine, you know, maybe are pedestrian, but they were painful for me. I mean, I, I was a very insecure, introverted kid who really struggled to make friends as a young person, um, was somewhat self-isolated from people. I was the kid that got bullied on the playground and wore an eye patch and headgear and, you know, just was not a vision for you. And I think that what drove was the me eye patch to for be, got... I have a weak eye, it's still weak. It didn't uh -huh. resolve the problem. Um, so I'm sort of cross-eyed if I'm not wearing my glasses. And the idea was mm -hmm. you put a patch on your strong eye to, to strengthen your weak eye. Right. Yeah, it didn't really work out though. <laughs> <laughs> if you had if you had true Blackbeard the that. pirate fucking intensity, you could have maybe pulled yeah, it maybe off. Yeah, maybe I could have willed my way into <laughs> resolving the problem. And or at least wearing, scared away the bullies. I've been wearing glasses for 50 years. Uh, yeah. So um, that remains unresolved. But yeah, so I think that drove me into books and just kind of being a bit of a, a, a loner. Um, I discovered swimming at a pretty young age and that was the only um, physical athletic thing that I showed any any kind of aptitude in whatsoever. It wasn't like I was a star, but I was like, oh, I can actually do this and it was fun and I could make friends there. And so that just sort of slowly became more and more of my world. And by the time I was 14 or 15, I really doubled down on that. And I was the kid who was going to swim practice in the morning before school and after school. And that was the safe place for me where I felt at home. There was something about being underwater Mm. I think that helped mute out whatever angst or pain I was experiencing that I didn't have the cognitive tools to really understand. I don't think that's personal. I think that's kind of universal. Yeah, it was like it when was you're like in a, the water. There's yeah, yeah. A, I think there is something like there's, that. It just it's a the sound is different. It's you feel like safe. Yeah. yeah, and I loved it. Um, and you know, it loved me back eventually. I learned you know tools for life in the swimming pool. Um, I realized pretty early that I was never gonna be the super talented kid, but I had a capacity for suffering and work, outworking um, the guy in the lane next to me and you know, made hay with that. So by the time I was a senior in high school, I was one of the top swimmers in the area. I grew up in the Washington DC area. And that kind of um, workhorse mentality uh, I found was applicable in academics. So I went from being a kid who really struggled academically to figuring that out and being a very good student. And that opened up all kinds of doors for me. I got into Harvard, I got into Princeton, I got into Stanford. I ended up going to Stanford, which was the number one swimming program in the world, uh, collegiate swimming program in the world and was swimming with Olympic champions and world record holders. Uh, even though I was very much a bench warmer, like I was not a scholarship athlete, mm. but I was like, this is my chance to play with the big boys and see if I can mix it up with them. Um, and I remember making a very conscious choice of choosing to try to be a small fish in a big sea as opposed to being mm -hmm. a big fish in a small in a small sea. But it was around that time that alcohol entered the picture and I was 3000 miles away from home. And I went from living in a, in a pretty controlled environment with parents who set very high expectations for me that I never could quite meet to being completely free. And, and like a lot of kids, I think, who transition from that type of environment into that kind of freedom, go a little bit haywire, yeah. which is exactly what I did. So Dr. Gabor Mate would say that all addiction is an attempt to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. And there is all of, all of us, when we have that moment and we go off to college, I think drinking is pretty ubiquitous. Like most of us have yeah. this experience, but for some people, 
this becomes an addiction. And and given your story, this is even more interesting because it's there wasn't that thing that you're running from desperately because it was so difficult to look at. Yeah, right. exactly. But it was subtle and it was subtle little things that actually switched from, all right, this is me exploring my own consciousness with these different substances, going a little overboard, puking this one night and whatever, to it becoming a consistent problem that stayed with you till you're what, 31? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did a podcast with with Gabor years ago, and and as he's wont to do, flips yeah, for the, sure. uh, you know, <laughs> for sure. makes it a therapy session, which I was all about. I was <laughs> yeah. like, bring it on, I need this. Yeah. Um, and he lulled me into this place of of acknowledging that because his you know his primary thesis is that addiction stems from childhood trauma, mm-hmm. and my whole thing was like, yeah, but like as I said at the outset, like my parents were loving, like they did, you know, they took care of me and all of that. And he's like, it's not about blame. It's about some need of yours that wasn't being met, you know, whether it's trying to measure up or seeking validation and accomplishment, whatever it was, drove a certain um, kind of disposition in me uh, where nothing was ever enough, you know, yeah. if I could put a pin on it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have consciously uh, characterized myself as an alcoholic at that time, but I was definitely the guy who, you know, you had to drag out of the party, the last to leave, the guy who, when the keg was tapped, would look for the half empties, <laughs> and you know, the guy who just went a little bit too far and was going out maybe one or two extra nights a week compared sure. to everybody else, and uh, you know, as as you know, the nature of alcoholism, at least in my case, was that it progresses slowly over time. So I was able to keep a cap on it for a while, but the drama sort of slowly intensified over time until it got really dark and lonely and and really sort of pathetic and sad. Some of that shyness that you expressed that was a part of you, I mean, alcohol is a solution for that. Sure. It's not the right solution, but it is a temporary solution where inhibitions drop because of the flood of GABA in your brain. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, now now I feel more confident. People call it literally liquid courage for that reason, right? Yeah. And even though I had accomplished certain things as a swimmer and had sort of distinguished myself academically, I was still very much a navel gazer. You know, I couldn't talk to a girl. I couldn't. I just wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. I felt like, and you hear this in AA a lot, like everybody else had the rule book for life. And I was sitting on the outside, like marveling at how people seem to, you know, gracefully navigate the world where I just felt, you know, anxious all the time. And alcohol solved that problem. Like I have a lot of love for it. Like mm-hmm. it, it gave me social tools that I lacked and taught me how to be a social animal in a social situation. Suddenly I could go to a party and, and crack a joke and flirt with a girl and do all these things that were beyond my capacity to handle prior to that. So it's not all bad, like it worked, you know what I mean? Which is why I doubled down on it. Like, Yeah, if it it didn't work at all, nobody would do it. The, 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 The cure for alcoholism isn't removing alcohol. Alcohol is, is the solution to the problem and it works until it stops working. Mm. And it took a while before it stopped working in my case. Um, but the ism remains once you remove the substance. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to think about that, you know, in the, in your situation, and for me, I'm on the precipice of having my own children. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, I wonder personally, and this is an age old question, is this something, your shyness, was this something that was 
taught, conditioned by mm-hmm. the nurture of your family and your environment? Or was this just something that came through in your soul as it chose incarnation and it was just like, this is me from the start? You yeah. know, it's a very interesting thing to to think about. Neither one is good nor bad. It just is what it is. But do you feel like this was something that you always had kind of innately? Or was this something that you just kind of learned from maybe not feeling like you weren't doing the right thing or whatever it might have been? Yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I, I think to an extent, it's a productive thought experiment, especially when you're looking down the barrel of becoming a parent and <laughs> right. I've got four kids. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know the answer to that. You know, I've often thought if this meet, if this certain need that I had was met in a different way by my parents who did the best that they could, would that have alleviated whatever, you know, thing was inside of me? that wouldn't have made it necessary for me to, you know, abuse substances in the way that I did. Ultimately though, that thought experiment doesn't really, um, uh, you know, provide me with a solution for life. So I've learned over time to kind of let go of that. And I'm much more focused on what I'm doing today and how I can, um, you know, leverage these tools that I've learned to ameliorate, you know, the disease as it as it rears its head and other kind of behavioral stuff. Like I don't, it's very rare that I would crave alcohol these days. Like sure. I don't think about it, it's been so long, but, but I still have the ism and that pops up in all kinds of ways and makes me an asshole or resentful or frustrated or, you know, grinding on this problem. Like we were talking when I walked in, like, we're both enjoying amazing lives. Like we're very privileged to get to do what we get to do and meet these amazing people and support our families, you know, by doing it. Um, so why don't I wake up inherently grateful <laughs> every day? You know, and it's it's like that's what I use most of my mental energy trying to you know focus on. It seems to me that we're all we're all deeply addicted, if to nothing else, being the self that we've mm-hmm. been. You know, and this is this is for me as I look at that and as I was expressing to you, I'm in a position now where I literally cannot blame a single external thing for any discomfort or dis, you know, dis-ease I have in my own psyche right. or in my own life. There's nothing I can look at. So it's just a pure mirror looking at myself. But nonetheless, I put myself continually because I have to acknowledge that it's me putting myself continually into situations where I'm stressed or situations where I'm melancholy or situations where I'm just gritting my teeth and thinking that the stakes are, you know, pressing down on me and things are things are so difficult that I don't know if I'm going to make it out or whatever whatever mental construct and it feels like I've I'm just addicted to being the self that I was mm-hmm. and the self that I learned to be and I'm trying to get now unaddicted mm-hmm. to being that version of myself and get addicted to being a new version of myself or at least you know, have some kind of neutrality where I'm not constantly subconsciously drawn into creating situations that can activate the same neurochemical hormonal cocktails of the old Aubrey. Yeah, sure. It's that level of self-awareness is both terrifying and and free, right? (laughs) Because you can't blame anyone else. And it's not about anything external. It's only about your relationship with you. And you're still going to be, you know, impulsed by your innate biases and however your hardwiring has set you up to, you know, perceive the world. But you get that extra little moment of recognition to course correct, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I, you know, I would say that I've become 
you know, I got sober in 98. Uh, so I've been in this thing for a long time. And when I came in, I just thought, oh, it's drug addicts and alcoholics. That's what addiction is. But I've become convinced that addiction lives on this massive spectrum. And we are all victims of addiction on some level, some mm-hmm. mild and some extreme from you know, the guy lying in the gutter with a bottle to the guy who can't pull the needle out of his arm to the compulsive scrolling while we're taking a shit, you know, or the guy who, or the that one's woman deep. who- That one runs deep. Goes, <laughs> yeah, who goes from bad relationship to bad relationship, sure. you know, repeating a certain pattern because there's something about that that they can't, there's a compulsivity to that that they can't control. So I think thinking about addiction more broadly makes it applicable and instructive and useful for people as they develop enough self-awareness to have objectivity on how they maneuver the world and the daily habits that they continually find themselves, you know, falling prey to that are leading their lives in the wrong direction. And the impulse to addiction, this the way that we're wired, it doesn't have to all be bad because I knew someone I I dated her before I'm, you know, got with my wife and Mm -hmm. her name is Maya. And we actually did a podcast on gratitude. And what I found about her is she had a daily gratitude practice that was unbroken for seven years. And she was addicted to gratitude, Mm. like literally addicted to gratitude. Uh And it was amazing. She was such (laughs) a happy person. (laughs) Yeah. And it was, it was like, I'm so jealous. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But she forged that addiction. It it is a practice, right? Absolutely. It didn't come, she didn't necessarily wake up feeling grateful, but by dint of, you know, her, allegiance to that practice becomes that which she aspired to become and it wasn't a it was a 30 minute practice like it was like a legit practice Uh that she did and there was different versions it wasn't the same thing every day she had a whole curriculum that she developed and being grateful for different aspects of her life sometimes it was air sometimes it was money itself sometimes it was love sometimes and there was different practices Mm -hmm. some involved a lot involved journaling but really feeling it and it obviously she chose that because at some point prior to that she wasn't feeling grateful she was solving a problem right and she just chose a solution that she could become addicted to that's pretty much if we're going to choose something i mean yeah, that's that's about a pretty, the best that's a pretty one. good one to latch on <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. and so that's possible with the same mechanism that drives people to all of the things that you mm-hmm. mentioned prior the same mechanism can kick in and get you addicted to those things or perhaps in your case you know you became addicted to running yeah and and triathlons yeah i mean i think um it's important to frame addiction in the context of, of behaviors that are um leading towards some negative outcome in your life mm-hmm. like i yes you can have an addictive relationship with something that's good but you know, the pernicious kind of definition of, of, of addiction would be something that you continually repeat in your life that is wreaking havoc or causing problems for yeah. you. But yeah, I mean, people say to me, oh, you got into ultra endurance sports and you just, you know, shifted from one addiction to the next. And I'm like, yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> they're expecting me to fight back on that. And I'm like, no, I acknowledge that. Um, but I will say that the, the, there's a qualitative difference in that that um that pivot which i've gone through phases of obsession with i'm not obsessed with it now uh 
moved my life in a positive direction and were more like spiritual odysseys of self-discovery sure. than ego-driven or performance-oriented. Or escapism. Yeah. I mean, there's an escapist element to it, I think, but what's particular to endurance sports, especially ultra endurance sports, is you, you, you're, you're forced to spend an unbelievable amount of time alone. And I was going through a lot of existential angst mm-hmm. um, at the time that I was heavily um, involved in that because I had, I had you know, problems that I was trying to solve about who I wanted to be and what I was here to do. And I wasn't finding ready answers to those questions, but all of that solace that came with hours and hours on the bike or trail running or what have you, you know, allowed me to kind of, you know, allowed all of that to percolate and ultimately have kind of led to everything that I've been able to create and manifest yeah. as a result. Let's go to the let's go to this middle period between 31 and 40. Um, mm-hmm. 31 things must have been at 30-ish, things must have gotten to their darkest point. Yeah. So we can talk maybe just for a moment about what that darkest point was like before you actually decided to yeah. become sober and then carrying on to this next little stretch where it seemed like potentially eating and eating the wrong type of food uh-huh. became the next kind of challenging yeah. step. So yeah, the, 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 the kind of final chapter in my alcoholism, just to disabuse everybody of any kind of romantic Bukowski notion of what it was like, mm-hmm. I was not you know, penning the great American novel or <laughs> doing anything creative. I was by myself, um, drinking alone, often waking up in the morning and having a vodka tonic in the shower and working as a lawyer and trying to sneak drinks throughout the day. Like it was exhausting. It was, it was sad and lonely. Um, I had burned bridges with friends. I was unreliable. My parents didn't want anything to do with me. And, you know, ultimately, um, I had a marriage that ended on the honeymoon. Like I had, a, you know, I created a lot of chaos and wreckage and destroyed a lot of relationships and just became, you know, a, a irresponsible, unreliable member of society living like two blocks from here, sleeping on uh, a bare mattress on the floor of a shitty apartment with no mm-hmm. furniture. And, you know, the phone wasn't ringing. Um, I was, I'd gotten two DUIs. I was looking at, possible jail time i was going to get fired from my job and just woke up one day you know after a bender and nothing particularly terrible had happened that night but i had kind of reached that nadir where i was like i can't do this anymore and i had been seeing an addiction therapist and he was like are you ready and he's like i got a bed for you and ended up going up to oregon and checking into a rehab uh thinking i was going to do a quick couple weeks spin dry because i was so important and i had to get back to my job (laughs) and uh you know had this epiphany you know coming to there that i you know my best thinking i thought oh i'm a smart guy i was literally you know institutionalized and that landed on me like a ton of bricks and i just realized like i better figure this out because the future is not looking bright and started opening up and taking direction and and listening and letting go of how I thought things should be. And for the first time was honest about the things that I was doing and the ways that I was behaving. And the, you know, I remember a counselor telling me like, you know, you have a case of alcoholism that we typically only see in like 65 year old men who come in here who have been drinking for the better part of their lifetime. And if you don't, if you don't get this, like you're probably gonna die. 
And he just said it so point blank, like I'll never forget it. And it scared the shit out of me. So he said, I think you, you I, I know that you think you're gonna spin out of here in 28 days, but we think you should stick around. And I just said, I'll stay here as long as you think I should, should be here. And I ended up living there for a hundred days, um, which is kind of a long time to be in rehab. Sure. But that saved my life, you know? And I, I came back to Los Angeles, went back to my job, but my real job was sobriety. Like I just took it, you know, super seriously. I was going to multiple meetings a day and really committed to building a strong foundation of sobriety as if my life depended on it because it did. Um, but in the decade that kind of ensued, the other thing that kind of came in was this, and it's part of that like achievement thing or, or trying to get approval. Like I was on this path to becoming that successful person that society and my parents would, would approve of. Mm -hmm. You know, in my mind, that meant like being a partner in this law firm and having the nice car and the nice condo or whatever it is. And I was really intent upon making that happen and just, you know, transferred a lot of alcoholic energy into workaholism and grinded and grinded and grinded until I was 39 years old and 50 pounds overweight. And, you know, brushing up against this existential crisis that I mentioned, because never once for a minute did I stop or pause to consider like, what am I doing? Like, is this what I want? Like, yeah. am I, who am I doing this for? Am I doing this for approval and approval of whom? You know, it's sort of like the great Tyler Durden quote, you know, we, we, uh, we work jobs we hate to, you know, make money to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't care about paraphrase loosely, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I was successful in that. Like I had achieved a certain level of success and I repaired my relationships with my family and my friends. And from the outside looking in, it all looked pretty good. Like I was on a good path, but inside I was really dying, but I didn't know where to put that energy. Even though I had these tools from sobriety and I was very plugged into 12 step and all of that, um, you had a good community. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's like so strong here in LA. I made all new. I like. I needed all new friends. You know, yeah. I needed. I, it's like, you know, all my other friends were partying and going to bars. Sure. And I need. And what's great about LA is that there's so many young people who are doing cool things, who are full of life, who are all about sobriety. And I really, you know tapped into that and that was huge for me and still is like they're still like, I would say probably so the friendships I made yeah, in 98 essential. like the people that I got sober with are still some of the people that I'm closest with mm -hmm. um and just was eating like shit and you know fast food diet and you know a lot of like what was your favorite fast food stuff. jam back in the day I mean you know you know, the ultimate double cheeseburgers from Jack in the Box on the way home. <laughs> I had a few of those, yeah. I had a few of those. You know? Between sourdough jacks. Yeah, a couple of those. Yeah, maybe like, appalling. I mean, I would, I would, and. Did you ever get into the double Western bacon cheeseburger? A couple I got of those. Into that. I, I got into that those. when I was I mean, in my younger days. I mean, plenty of that shit and just yeah. take out Chinese food in the law firm and working long hours and, you know, hitting the drive through and, you know, medicating myself with food as much as sure. anything else. Um, and and kind of still in denial that I wasn't a collegiate swimmer. Like when you're swimming, you have this crazy appetite and you can just throw down mm -hmm. so many calories. So a lot of my eating habits were formed during that period of time. And you think, even though you're 39 years old, <laughs> that you're still that 21 year old, you know, who can metabolize food that way. 
Uh, so of course you're gonna put on a bunch of weight. So I was never like morbidly obese or anything. I just look like a heavy dude who works in a law firm. Um, my energy was terrible. I was depressed and, and this all kind of came to a head when I was 39 when I was, I'd worked late one night and I was coming home and walked up a flight of stairs. I've told this story many times, but you know, was, was too winded to, you know, complete the staircase. Like I had to stop halfway up the stairs. I was like breathing heavy and sweat on my brow and had a tightness in my chest. And it scared me. It was like another bottom, you know, in yeah. my life and heart disease runs in my family. My grandfather, who was a champion swimmer, um, almost made the Olympic team, uh, had died of a heart attack at 54. I'm now 54. So I think about that a lot these days. And I just had this moment, you know, and I think these moments are visited upon all of us if we have the aptitude to be paying attention where I knew, I didn't just know I needed to change. Like I had this um, spark of, of willingness and it reminded me of the day that I decided to go to that rehab, like that one decision or that one w moment where I was willing and I picked up the phone and called my therapist and said, I'm ready to go, like change my life forever, like yeah. little moments like that. And I felt like I was having another one of those experiences. And because I had had that prior experience, I knew how powerful they could be if I could hold on to that energy and leverage it immediately into some kind of action that would reframe my experience. Yeah. This is where, when I was refreshing myself on the timeline of your story, you know, preparing for this podcast and recognizing that it was 39 when this happened, mm -hmm. this is a very inspirational and important thing for people to digest because there's a lot of people listening right now that are in what are all kinds of ages. But I remember being, you know, 28 and I wasn't happy with what I was doing for my work. I was partying mm -hmm. way too much then, you know probably close to you know some kind of addictive tendencies because i was so dissatisfied with myself and telling myself fucking alexander the great conquered the world at 25 and look sure. at me piece of shit doing nothing at 28 you know <laughs> like of course but uh -huh. these are just the ways that the psyche works and so many of us can think it's too late or maybe we're out of shape and we're in we're 35 and like ah oh, it's too late to do anything but it's not and you hear mm -hmm. stories like this all the time and we cannot hear enough of these stories of you were 39 you know you solved one problem with your addiction you maybe had a few different talents like you said in the swimming pool you had a tendency to be able to outwork people you had to you had the ability to withstand some suffering you learned a few skills but you also took a lot of you know took a lot of lumps along the way a lot of mm -hmm. hardships not like you were coming with some extraordinary advantage from what you did there forward we're all we all similarly have our own challenges and our own strengths mm -hmm. but at any age and if it wasn't 39 it could have been 45 or 50 or whatever but at that age then you made another choice and then so much epic shit in your life has come forward after that yeah and it, it sort of looking at it it feels like it all happened really quickly but you know i am 54 <laughs> like yeah, you know, yeah it took a long fucking time you know <laughs> yeah. and painfully long when I was in the moment of it and in the pain of trying to figure it out. Um, you know, even, even after some of the big successes that I've had, I've had like major failures too, and it's not been a linear journey by oh, any stretch. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, it wasn't like I up and quit my job and just changed my life overnight. Like this is, it was a, a very, you know, slow process, but yeah, it began with 
changing my relationship with food that was that when re- you decided to go vegan at that point no not right away i mean i knew like after that staircase incident I knew like, I need to do like a rehab, like I need to go to detox for lifestyle. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. How can I create that in my life? Like, I'm not gonna go, I wasn't gonna go away again, but how can I have a version of that that will allow me to like, you know, shut the laptop, laptop off and like reboot the operating system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first couple of days, like I, of course, like on the way to rehab, I drank the whole way. I showed up like just sloshed and loaded. And it took like three days for the cobwebs to clear. And they mm-hmm. put me in a shitty room with like rubber sheets and the whole thing. And I was like, I need that, you know, like I need, yeah, yeah. I need that. So how do I do that? Well, I was like, I'll do, I'll do a seven day juice cleanse. Like I'd never done anything like that. Sure. Now everybody's doing them. I'm, I'm sure they were doing them before, but it seems much more in the zeitgeist than it was in at, at that time. I'd never gone a single day without eating solid food. Um, that seems hard. Like I needed to do something hard, like a challenge. Mm-hmm. And that was what I arrived upon. Like, I didn't really give it that much thought. I was like, this will be hard. Like I'll do that and it'll be difficult. And it was, it was, you know, the first couple of days, I'm sure you've done yeah. you know, versions of this. Um, first two days yeah, it's terrible. get brutal. You're, I was sweating and I'm like, lying. I was like, mm-hmm. this is like what coming off of drugs is like, you know? Yeah. Um, and I and I and I relished that suffering. I was like, I wanted it to be hard, you know? <laughs> right. But by the seventh day, as you know, like when everything clears, even though you haven't eaten any food, you feel unbelievable. You have this for people who never experienced it. It's yeah, it's absolutely remarkable. Yeah, like you have no idea what that, how good that feels, mm-hmm. and but you really do have to earn it because yeah. it, as as like good anything you, in life, you have right. to earn it. Yeah. Right. So that must have been a really powerful moment for you to feel that for the first for the first time because that kind of fasting, ketosis, cleansed, your body is like truly rested. Mm-hmm. You know, the clarity, the clarity of, the clarity of mind. Yeah. That's the thing. Right. That's just unbelievable. Like, what can't you do when you're that clear? That's what I think to myself. And still, I don't go back to it nearly enough. I know. I'm like, know. here's this glorious golden opportunity. But I don't do I'll it. I'll do it later. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, it was a water. It was a watershed moment, and I just thought, I want to feel like this all the time. Yeah. Like the the alcoholic in me is like more. You know. Yeah. And I told my wife, I'm like, I'm just not going to eat food anymore. Like, why should I eat food? I feel better without eating food. You yeah. know. Yeah. She's like, Yeah, call your sponsor. You know, like I, I don't think that's such a good idea. But that's what motivated me to find a way of eating that would approximate for me that experience of how I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I tried a bunch of things, and I would always lapse back into bad habits. And I went vegetarian for a while, but that you know quickly pivoted to Pizza Hut pizzas without you know pepperoni on them or whatever. And I just mm-hmm. felt as shitty as I ever had. And I was like, what can I do? And the one thing that I that I like left last on the list was going 100% plant based because it just seemed so severe and restrictive. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't appealing to me. Um, and I, and, and, you know, I'm not, it's, it's not like I was driven by, you know, towards it out of compassion or a sense of environmental responsibility or anything like mm-hmm. that. Like it was purely vanity and, and just, you know, wanting to personally see if I could find a way to feel better. But, you know, I ultimately decided I would give it a try. And I had a friend 
lives in Austin, actually, um, Rip Esselstyn, who um, had been a swimmer at, at, at Texas and had been a professional triathlete, an incredible swimmer, All-American, became a firefighter, had, um, had gotten some press and notoriety because he uh, had a challenge in his firehouse, Engine 2 in Austin, where um, he had a bunch, there's a bunch of, they're all competitive, right? These firefighters, but they did a challenge to who could lower their cholesterol the most. And he started cooking in the firehouse. He's plant-based. His dad's like a legendary doctor in the space. And, um, and, and by virtue of cooking healthy food for these guys, they lowered their blood markers tremendously. And that led to him writing a book. But the point I'm making is that he was a Facebook friend of mine at the time. Like we kind of grew up around the same time swimming and knew of each other. And he was my first kind of point of contact. I was like, oh, you're writing a, he was writing this book about this at the time. And I was like, tell me how you do this. That became a phenomenon, that engine too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, So he was like my first sort of person that I could look to who was also an athlete who made it seem accessible. And the truth for me personally, and you know, I'm just I'm just sharing my own personal experience. I'm not telling anybody how to live or eat. Um, it agreed with me, you know, in a in a in a really profound way. And I did feel very close to how I felt on that seventh day of that that juice fast. Mm-hmm. And within seven to ten days of making that switch, and I just thought this is agreeing with me, and this is I got to learn more about how to do this because this seems to work for me. And that was. 14 years ago yeah this point so it took me about i don't know six or eight months uh, you know after that cleanse of finally settling into that and i've just sort of been doing it ever since yeah the uh just to touch on that you know a little more briefly it's it's people can sometimes get lost in the rules of the thing but then you can play in the rules of a thing and totally make a mess of it as you said vegetarian Mm -hmm. you can go to pizza hut and eat pizza hut pizzas you can go to olive garden and get you know some kind of alfredo dish with Mm -hmm. the 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 whatever processed breadsticks be like yeah i'm vegetarian right well you're not really doing anything good for yourself at all at that point and now you know now there's so many meat and dairy analogs um that are available that they're figuring out how to make that stuff taste good. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy. So right. you and can very can be easily be, be a very unhealthy vegan. Yeah. So it's, it's about whole foods. It's about doing it right. It requires some education. Uh, um, and I'm not perfect. Like, you know, I like to, you know, I, I'll, I'll, you know, indulge in the vegan junk food, you know, yeah, sure. and then convince myself that I'm being healthy, you know, I do it <laughs> just like everybody else. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's just a, that important lesson of don't if you know follow your heart, follow, listen to your body, but don't get so lost in the rules that mm-hmm. you know you're you're not even actually paying attention to what you're doing for your body. Like yeah. allow the rules to be. You know, I think that's just one of the things that I would recommend is really think about what you're eating and how close to the earth it is how much like nutrients are actually mm-hmm. coming through this how much other crap is in it like these are the very important things of course you know there's the environmental debates and there's all these other debates and and moral reasons and all of that but all that aside like just really listen to you know what your body really wants rather than what the rule book yeah. says about anything. And you gotta like, you know, the powerful thing about the juice cleanse for me was that reboot, like it's a tabla rasa, like you wipe the slate clean, you realize that your body is capable of feeling better than it typically does. Yeah, If you're just eating shit all the time, you lose your connection with that. So you have to clean things up and 
you know, first before you can kind of calibrate that that tuning fork so yeah. that you can listen to your body and in a meaningful way. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. Like try a bunch of shit, see what works for you. Right. You know, journal it, write it down. Like, oh, I felt, you know, an hour after I ate this thing, I felt like shit. Oh, when I eat this, I feel better. Okay, noted, you know, and and just be in a perpetual state of refining that. Yeah. And have the discipline to back up what right. You know, because there's it's so funny what what different bargains will make for a short little amount of mouth pleasure, yeah, or some kind of social. Like I try not to eat sugar desserts, but I'll be out to dinner with somebody and they'll want mm-hmm. desserts and they'll hand out four spoons, and, and it's like I almost I kind of want the bread pudding, but I don't really want the bread pudding. Yeah. But I feel like there's four spoons and we're all doing it, so yeah. But know, even but, even more than that, I would say. You know, I remember in early sobriety, people would talk about um, their food addiction or or emotional eating, and I was like, "What are you talking about?" Like, I don't, I didn't understand that. But it wasn't until I've gone on this nutrition odyssey that I've become very attuned to the way in which my eating habits will mirror, you know, whatever I'm going through emotionally. Sure. And when you do that math and you realize, like oh, I impulsively grab for this right after I have the fight with my wife or, <laughs> you know, like totally. what is the the feeling inside of you that is so painful that you need to numb that you're, that you're reaching out for some food product to um, ameliorate that, you mm-hmm. know? And I think we all do that on some level. Yeah, that, that, that level of awareness is crucial. All right, for, so you make this decision. You, and then at some point you started training, right? Because you went on to accomplish, and we'll talk a bit about this, some pretty incredible things in the ultra mm-hmm. space. But at some point you had to decide, all right, if I can't make it up the stairs without getting winded, I got to start training. Yeah. So like, what was that like? Well, it was, it was, it was gradual also, uh, you know, with the change in, in, in my nutrition, I had this you know, resurgence of vitality. I suddenly had a ton more energy than I was used to. My, my, I'd be like tapping my foot and <laughs> like this, and my body wanted to move. You yeah. know, and and in that ten year period after getting sober, like I was just working, like I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't training, and 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 you know, movement is such a, a a big part of who I am, and had brought me so much joy as a young person. And I just had put that in the rearview mirror, like that's what kids do. I'm an adult now. I don't do that anymore. But I couldn't ignore my body anymore. My wife was like, "Will you please get out of the house?" And like, you're driving me crazy. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I just started. You know, I I started jogging a little bit, and there's a pool near my house. I went and checked it out for the first time. I hadn't swum in years. My wife bought me a bike for my birthday, and it was all very casual. Like it was a slow process of just reconnecting with my physical self, mm-hmm. and I had no aspirations of becoming a competitive athlete. I was just enjoying the process of recapturing that aspect of who I am and realizing like this epiphany that that brought me joy and 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 this commitment that I made to myself that I was going to honor that, you know, no matter what. Like I like doing this. I know, you know, I'm a lawyer and I'm supposed to be like this, but like I'm going to continue doing this mm. because there's something very primal about this that is fundamentally who I am and I'm done ignoring it. But, um, you know, that just slowly started to build. Uh, 
I got fit pretty quick. I lost the weight really quickly. I was recovering really fast and I'd never really been a runner, but like my volume and my mileage was escalating really quickly. Do you think that and, the, you know, a vegan diet is typically very low inflammation, mm -hmm. you know, do you think that the the lack of systemic inflammation from your diet helps you recover from post-exercise yeah, inflammation? Huge. huge. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. And there's a lot of ultra runners that are, that are plant-based. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't say that eating a plant-based diet fundamentally makes you a better athlete, but it is, if you're doing it correctly, it's very anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And as you know, um, recovery is everything. It's one thing to train really hard, but if you're not recovering properly, you're not able to repair your body and bounce back and do it again and again and again and again. And the gains that you wanna see are the result of the um, rapidity with which your body can do those repairs overnight yeah. so that you can train harder, you can go longer, you can go faster and all of that. Like you're able to pack in a lot more quality training into a shorter period of time, which over the course of a season or a number of years is gonna translate into, you know, fundamentally more gains. Yeah, and you know, this is, so you went on to compete and you're competing in the open division with people of mm -hmm. all, all ages. And, you know, when you're talking about some of your Ironman competitions in the Epic Five Challenge, which I wanna get into, I mean, you're ranking with the best in the world in the top 10 of this. And you're not exactly in the age category of someone who's, no. you know, typically in the prime of their athletic. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I would say that in, in in ultra endurance, there's a lot of older athletes. There's something about the human body's ability to continually um, improve endurance uh, that isn't the case necessarily with like speed and power and agility. Mm -hmm. um, so that that probably played in my favor. But yeah, you know, unusual for a guy to go. You know, even though I had this swimming background and 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 knew how to suffer and knew how to push myself, hadn't done it in a very long time, and then at 43, you know, distinguishing myself in in some pretty crazy, outrageous ultra endurance races. Tell us about that, the Epic Five, because that seemed like yeah. One so of the well, leading up ones. leading up to prior to that, I I I'd really like my the the race that I really honed in on and distinguished myself in was a race called Ultraman, which is a double Ironman race. Um, for people that don't know, an Ironman sort of sort of accepted as the you know ultimate endurance challenge. Over the course of a day, you swim 2.4 miles, you race your bike 112, and then you run a marathon. This race is twice that distance. You circumnavigate the entire Big Island of Hawaii, but you do it in three days. So it's a three-day stage race. The first day, you swim 6.2 miles and ride your bike 90 miles. Uh, ending up in Volcano National Park. So there's tons of elevation gain. It's a long swim. Yeah, it's a long swim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, But it's the one triathlon where swimming actually makes a difference and yeah. swimming is my strength. So I was able to just crush everyone on the swim and get out like yeah. 10 minutes ahead of everybody <laughs> and, and just be looking behind myself the whole time because I'm a very average cyclist. Um, the second day is 171 miles on the bike. And then the third day is a, a, is a double marathon run, 50, 54.2. Um, so I did, I got um, sixth in that race. It's a world championship race. I got sixth in that race in 2009. And then the year later, I did this thing called Epic Five, which wasn't a race. It was an adventure that my friend Jason Lester concocted. Mm -hmm. And the attempt was to do, um, five Ironmans on all five Hawaiian islands in five days. 
And we just set about doing it ourselves. We had a couple you know, people helping us out, but it was very much a DIY homespun thing. We ran into all kinds of crazy logistical challenges with bikes breaking and you know, luggage getting lost and cause you got to finish by a certain sure. time to get the it's plane. It's like amazing race. Yeah, it's kind of like that, endurance. yeah. And it was, um, it was super hard and, and crazy and wild and fun. And we didn't end up doing it in five days. We ended up doing it in like six and change, uh-huh. but we got it done. For most, for people who don't realize, like most people run just a marathon and a lot of times they get, a cold or they get sick mm-hmm. afterwards and they recovering like deeply for days or a mm-hmm. week or however long after one of these things an iron man is particularly you know it's considered like the gold standard of this because not only are you doing a marathon you're also doing the swim and you're also doing the bike and everybody's like whoa yeah. but then you were doing double that and then over uh-huh. the course and then you're like ah screw it let's do five of them mm-hmm. you know and figure it out and it's hard to fathom for people who haven't you know been exposed to that or haven't participated i've never done it i've just spoken to a lot of people who have and understand it and so i don't know experientially but to even try to grasp that it's like whoa this is this is something else and i think mm. it's uh it's very difficult for someone who hasn't experienced something like that to really get it what an accomplishment that is yeah it's it's you know some time has passed like i haven't raced in a couple of years now so i feel like i have a little bit more perspective on it now and and what's cool is that there's always people out doing crazier stuff so mm-hmm. i'll always minimize i'm like yeah i did that but like this other guy did this other <laughs> thing you know um and so just honoring that and being like yeah i did that that was really fucking cool but i think that the way it works is like the frog in the water that gets a little bit hotter and hotter and hotter until it's boiling like laird hamilton doesn't just drop in on jaws like he's Mm -hmm. surfing waves his whole life and they're getting bigger very slowly and incrementally until he's totally comfortable dropping in on the biggest wave in the world in ultra endurance like you're just you're just kind of slowly acclimating to greater and greater volume until it suddenly feels normal so as outlandish as it sounds and as and as intimidating and as scary as it was the prospect of of attempting that um i'd done enough where i felt like you know we could probably do that you know (laughs) you know but that only comes from putting in the time and the experiences that you you garner and the fitness that you accumulate through many years of training i mean when i was when i was training for those things i mean it was a job you know i was training like 20 25 hours a week sure and when you're not training, you're doing all the recovery stuff and the nutrition stuff and taking care of all the little details and all the logistics and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was sort of all consuming. When you were telling yourself, you know, that you got to keep going, you need to suffer more because this is about suffering tolerance. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, whether you're talking to Lance Armstrong or talking to someone like yourself, like you have to you have to coach yourself. You have to be a good coach to yourself in this mm-hmm. process because it is very, very much mental. What's your kind of inner monologue as the inner coach of yourself in these points where you need to push yourself through mm. the suffering? I think for me, um, it's all about being present and comfortable with the discomfort. You know, I think if you get caught up in like, I got to make it to here, or, you know, I'm thinking about some destination, then it detracts from 
your ability to get there because you can't get there if you're not anchored in the moment that you're actually in. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what happens is time becomes very malleable. Like if I'm doing an eight hour ride and you're in this like suffering state of mind, you're not used to that. It's gonna feel like an eternity, but when you build up to it, like suddenly an eight hour ride feels like a two hour ride. So there is a weird thing that happens with that, that I think any endurance athlete would, would recognize. But for me, it's just, it's about being, it's always bringing myself back to the present moment yeah, and not trying to run away from it or distract myself from it. And that's I, good advice. Yeah, and I think, you know, back to the piece about, you know, solving this existential, you know, kind of crisis that I was having, like the suffering is, for me, it was necessary, but it was also this amazing teacher because when you're at that point where you feel like you can't go any further, you can't lie to yourself. Like there's ultimate truth to be mined in who you are. Like that is when character is revealed. Like, who are you actually? Are you able to go a little bit farther? Or are you the guy who pusses out mm -hmm. and tells everyone you actually did something that you didn't do? Like all of that percolates to the surface. And those were the things that I was trying to figure out for myself. It's like, you know, Kali, you know, you gotta burn. Mm. You gotta burn in order to emerge carrying a different type of frequency. And for me, there was no shortcut to that. There was no end run around that. And, you know, I think there was something that I relished about that, that I miss because my life is, is busy now and I have lots of responsibilities and I do lots of other things. So I'm not able to kind of connect with that part of me in the way that I was doing at that time. Um, but it was a very powerful teacher. The surrender to the resistance to the discomfort is so important in, in all different things. Of mm -hmm. course, in you know, a workout, physical activity is a great way to practice this universal life skill. But it could be anything. It could be you're tired. You know, and if you if you're tired and you have that fatigue kind of setting in and you have to keep staying alert or awake or working or something, you can be constantly reaching for the next stimulant, coffee, nicotine, whatever, and, mm -hmm. and then thinking about how long you have and then obsessing about all these future things and all these solutions. Or like you can just get into this deep acceptance of, uh-huh, this is how I feel. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, and really be there with it. And then it kind of, it loses the the edge and the mm -hmm. gravity to it. Same with a physical pain or any discomfort or anything that you're uncomfortable with. A conversation that, you know, is uncomfortable or the, whatever it is. Like if you can really just get back into the present without allowing your mind to jump to all of these other places like you're talking about, then so much of the difficulty collapses. Right, because you project all this meaning onto it. Yeah. But if you can just be with it, you realize, oh, it's not gonna kill me. I thought it was gonna kill me. <laughs> right, right. I was so desperate to run away from this, yeah. but actually just being in it isn't as bad as I feared. And it always changes. Like it's always in flux. There's nothing static about life. And there's certainly nothing static about whatever emotion you're experiencing. And apply it to, let's say someone's inspired after hearing us talk to do a juice cleanse. Mm -hmm. You know, all right. Like embrace it. Don't be thinking about when you're going to get to eat. Right. I mean, although it is sometimes hard to stop the food fantasies from coming. <laughs> or when know. that comes up, yeah. like deconstruct it. Like, yeah, wow, yeah. that's interesting. Like, how can I be curious about that rather than just obsessive about it? Sure. Yeah. And and just 
be in the moment of the thing that you're going through and it'll it'll the time mm. will pass yeah like you're able to do that all of us have so much more capability than we think we do you know it's 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 inherent it's not like you're a super you have superpowers you've just accessed something that we all have available yeah. to us and i'm the first one to say and i say it all the time like i i am not a talented athlete i'm just not you know <laughs> like i'm pretty average like i can but if i have a talent it's that i i i have uh you know i'm willing to suffer and maybe i'm willing to suffer a little bit more than the other guy but i don't have you know any kind of like crazy athletic gifts yeah you went on from that to now have one of the most successful podcasts mm -hmm. in the world different set of skills different requirement what do you think has been you know some of the attributes some of the mindsets some of the some of the understanding of yourself that's allowed you to experience success in this field that's just mm -hmm. continued to grow uh, as well as you've continued to grow within it yeah i don't know it's a, it's a good question i mean people ask me that a lot i i think well on you know one first and foremost like i've been doing it a long time so you know i started in 2012 um when did you start shortly thereafter right You've yeah been doing it i was pretty inconsistent for a while i think mm -hmm. i got consistent around 2016 uh -huh. but uh yeah i started around then too right but it was just like a show every four to six weeks something uh -huh. like that yeah so I started when stakes were lower. So, you know, I was doing shows when the audience was a fraction of what it is now. Um, so, you know, I did my reps. I put in the time to learn how to be a better listener and to learn how to, you know, think more deeply about the people that I'm sitting across from and learn how to, you know, curate the experience that I want to share with audiences. But I think, um, I think the thing that has been really helpful is is being in 12-step like i've sat in thousands of meetings and borne witness to people get up and bear their soul and tell mm. their story and share their pain and do it with such courage and authenticity and raw vulnerability and it never ceases to amaze me and through that um that um uh you know, same container, I've learned how to do the same myself and gotten comfortable sharing things that a lot of people are too afraid to share about their truth. Um, and there's something so powerful about that. So, you know, part of the the spark or the original genesis in, in doing a podcast was I wanted to be able to share that type of experience with a broader audience. Like, it doesn't have to be like an AA meeting, but, but I want, I wanted to create a space where people, I could help people feel comfortable sharing their emotional truth in a vulnerable way. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I've learned to do that by leading with vulnerability. You can't expect somebody else to share that if you're not willing to do it yourself, right? right. And to create a safe container for people to do that. So I think that's a, that's a big piece with it. And I think there's no, that's why you see a lot of successful podcasters who are in recovery. Like I think, that's a big reason why Dak Shepard is so successful and mm -hmm. so good at what he does because he comes from that tradition and mm -hmm. he understands that piece. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of people in recovery that are yeah, that that's are, interesting. That are podcast I never made hosts. that connection. Yeah, because you just you're just around people who are so comfortable sharing at a deeper level than yeah. you're typically, you know, that you typically experience in your day-to-day -day interactions. And this is part of a practice that I've been in in the 
medicine spaces that I've been a part right. of, whether it's an ayahuasca circle or whether mm -hmm. it's something that I'm cultivating in the fellowship that I lead, Fit for Service, where, or a men's group where people are sharing similarly. And this is this is really important to be able yeah. to like be able to, as you say, bear witness, like hold space, see somebody, and then allow yourself to be seen. Yeah, and it gives everybody else permission to indulge that part of who they are in a way that maybe they're not getting in their daily lives. And sure. you know, when I look at you, Aubrey, I see somebody who, who you know, I think your your talent and your superpower is is this unique facility that you have to merge you know, the traditional masculine being like a relatively alpha guy yourself with this deep love and appreciation for the mystical, which is, mm -hmm. you know, traditionally considered the purview of the feminine or sure. the flaky, you know, version of the male and recalibrating that and giving it a new language and giving other men the permission to have their exploration with that because, you know, to me, and I think we're aligned on this, like my spiritual life is the most important thing. And for a lot of guys, like they're just not comfortable talking about that yeah. or the, you know, there's a lot of trepidation around that or uncertainty, or it doesn't feel safe for them. And I feel like you give, you give men um, permission to explore that in a way. And I think that's really powerful. Well, I appreciate that. I received mm -hmm. that. And I think it's it's essential, you know, if we're locked and restricted in some way from the full expression of who we are, because yeah, we are physical beings and it's nice to go out there, swing some kettlebells and, you know, go sparring, do whatever you do whatever you want to do, you know, roll jujitsu, what whatever that expression is, like I celebrate that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't also celebrate our spiritual access and potential man you're missing out on a big yeah. part of life or vice versa if you're just focused on spirit but you've never seen what this amazing body is capable of when you just allow mm -hmm. it to push a little bit it's just uh it's kind of a tragedy to only yeah. be able to experience one side of it or not or let's say your emotional depth if you ever like really allowed yourself to sob or or break down in awe of life like if you haven't experienced that Come on, like right. that's what we're here for. But when I was 28 years old and, you know, like had this, you know, very, uh, you know, limited view of what success looked like and sure. what it meant to be a man, my sense was you're one thing. Like you can, if you, you can't be both of those things. Yeah. You can't be an athlete and an artist. You can't be, uh, you know, a strong man and a sensitive man. And I think it's important, you know, to really, throw that out the window and and you know provide tools for people to realize that we're dynamic complicated people that have that are multifaceted and fucking multi-dimensional man mm -hmm. yeah exactly <laughs> you know? and as much as as much as i've dedicated myself to all this i'm still messing stuff up constantly yeah, i sure. still have my own struggles yeah. and my own challenges I think it's also a big disservice when people project some image of perfection, like, mm -hmm. aha, look at me, I've got shit figured out. All right, I got some shit figured yeah. out, you know, <laughs> hooray. But there's always more shit. There's yeah. always other stuff that's yeah, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of that in the podcast space. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for let sure. Let me tell you how you need to do it, you know? And <laughs> right. I'm always, that's another thing I've learned in, in recovery, like you don't give advice, you share your experience. Yeah. And you know, you when you ask me about, you know, tools that I've learned to be a better host, um, 
it's 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 always about sharing experience and not trying to tell people how to live or give advice specifically. And you do that through storytelling. And in order to tell a story that's gonna resonate with people, you've got to figure out a way to connect with them emotionally. So leading with the heart and figuring out how to connect with another human being, like, which is why like during COVID, like I just, I, the Zoom thing, man, I, I just, you know, yeah, it's like, I need to be with that person. I need to read the energy. I need to figure out how, what's the way in, like, how can I really lock in on this human being and figure out how to extract, you know, the nuggets, whatever information they have to impart, whatever tools or whatever, that's secondary. Like first has to come the connection because if you don't have that, then the information doesn't land or it doesn't mm. stay with the person who's experiencing the conversation. Yeah. yeah, that's the thing when I'm getting interviewed, I can always feel when someone's really there with me or when mm. they have, you know, 23 questions and I've given them 60 minutes and they're gonna just <laughs> plow through those things yeah. regardless of yeah. what happens. Right, you answer and then they go, awesome. <laughs> yeah, and then they exactly. go to the next question. <laughs> exactly, that's brutal. Um, and and also, you know, the the ones that trying to find little, little unexplored areas. And this is for friendships, even if you're not a podcast host, like mm -hmm. just when you're getting to know people, like have the curiosity, one of my, you know, favorite people to spend time with is my friend Aaron Alexander. You might know him from. I know who he is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. but he always he always finds a way to ask a question just to me when we're hanging out. He's also a podcaster, but he'll find a way to ask something about me that I haven't thought about or haven't answered in a little while. And so we'll get to know each other a little better, and I'll try to return mm -hmm. the favor, or he'll challenge something that I've just taken for granted, and I'll be like, "You sure about that?" And I'll be like. Mm -hmm. Well, no, actually, <laughs> I'm not anymore. I was at some point. Let me go. Let me go look. And that's you a need, real gift. You need you people. Give. You need people like that in your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's essential. Well, this has been a pleasure to reconnect with you, and yeah. inspiring, inspiring for me. You know, I think we can all let our own self-limiting beliefs about age, or beliefs about where we are, or what we've done, or what we're capable of, um, just be that voice of resistance that keeps us from doing the next best thing and uh you know i'm 40 years old now and some part of me is like ah you know the athletic stuff it's still fun but you know there's nothing really that i can do now but that's not true there's no. always something else that My if, best if i want athletic it. year was 43 <laughs> right yeah and that's that's cool it's cool to think maybe i will maybe i won't but to just remove that uh, possibility wall of saying, oh no, this is it's not possible anymore. Just, just let's just take that off and say, like, whatever you want to do, man. Like, there's there's a chance, there's an opportunity. Yeah, man. I mean, if I've learned anything, it's that it's never too late. And that journey of self discovery is always just sitting out there waiting for you to tap on it. Um, and I continue to to mine that. You know, I, I I am full of all kinds of character defects and problems, but. Um, you know, at 54, like, I feel like I'm just starting, man. And it's so silly and dumb to say age is just a number, but, you know, I've stayed young by, by you know, my peers are all much younger than me, you know? And then I'll be like, oh yeah, you know, like our age, you know? And, I'm, and they're like looking at me like, dude, you're old. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I thought 
when I was 40, that was all she wrote. And when I was playing around with nutrition and thought, well, maybe I'm just supposed to feel like shit, I'm 40 now. And you get into this you know, um, mindset of resignation. So it's just about summoning that energy and realizing that there's so much capability that resides within all of us. And you know, like yourself, I've had the privilege of sitting across from so many people who've done extraordinary things and you see the humanity in all of them. I and mean, we project this superhero quality onto all these people, but they're all just human beings who had a dream and worked hard to achieve it. And it's inspiring to really um, own and grasp the idea that that you know we're all sitting on top of deep reservoirs of, of of potential that remain untapped and our job is to you know figure out how to authentically you know connect with that voice um that is telling us to you know unlock something and share it with the world and if you can do that and then share that story and tie it in some way to service uh as a teacher yeah. or in some way that can inspire other other people or pave the way for a better world. I mean, that to me is the recipe for a good purpose-driven, fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you for being an inspiration. Thank you for your amazing show. Thanks, you man. know, I don't get time to listen to a lot of other different shows, but every time I've dove in to check out your show, I've been deeply grateful for, uh, for that experience. So I encourage everybody who's watching now Thanks, man. Check out the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, honored to be here with you today yeah, and love what you're doing and I'm at your service. Beautiful, my man. Cool. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you, Ryan, as always. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I love you and I'll see you next week.